0: If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's
1: lrb.me forward slash now.
2: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.
0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
3: Well, first, I, I just read a couple of pages, two or three pages, um, from the Aimé Césaire, um, from the translation, just so that we are, or you, as we go together a little bit into his imaginative world. But first I must make an apology, because I am old... And white. And this is the voice of a man young when he wrote it in 1939 and black. And that makes an enormous difference to the voice. I say hurrah! More and more the old negritude is turning into a corpse. The undone horizon is pushed back and stretched between the torn clouds, a sign by lightning. The slave ship is splitting open, its belly in spasm ringing with noises. The cargo of this bastard suckling of the seas is gnawing at its bowels like an atrocious tapeworm. Nothing can drown the threat of its growling intestines. In vain the joy of the sails filled out like a purse full of doubloons. In vain the tricks allowed by the fatal stupidity of the police frigates. In vain does the captain have the most troublesome nigger hanged from the yardarm or thrown overboard or fed to his mastiffs. In their spilt blood the niggers smelling of fried onion find the bitter taste of freedom and they are on their feet, the niggers' the sitting down niggers unexpectedly on their feet on their feet in the hold on their feet in the cabin on their feet on deck on their feet in the wind on their feet beneath the sun on their feet in blood on their feet and free on their feet and in no way distraught free at sea and owning nothing veering and utterly adrift surprisingly on their feet on their feet in the rigging on their feet at the helm on their feet at the compass on their feet before the map on their feet beneath the stars on their feet and free and the cleansed ship advances fearlessly upon the caving waters gobs of our shame rot away by the belling sea at noon by the sun in the bud at midnight. To the sparrow-hawk who holds the keys of the east, I speak by the disarmed day and by the stone's throw of rain. To the squall who keeps watch in the west, I speak. To the white dog of the north, to the black snake of the south, I speak to the two who complete the girdle of the sky. To cross one more sea. Oh, one more sea to cross. So that I may invent my lungs. So that the prince may be silent. So that the queen make love to me. To kill one more old man. To set free one more madman. So that my soul may shine Bark shine, bark, 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 so the owl may hoot. My lovely, curious angel. The master of laughter. The master of fearful silence. The master of hope and despair. The master of idleness. The master of dance it is i
0: <laughs> i want to talk with john aschong mainly about this translation the cesaire translation but in order for us to get abroad first of all which in the united kingdom in the minute is not always all that easy at least in spirit um, I'd like to ask him about his, what they called in those days, voluntary exile in France. Um, I've just reread and was more moved even than the last time, by your novel uh, To the Wedding. And after reading Césaire, I was particularly alert this time to just the presence of languages in it. Um, they're not all there, as it were, spoken, although most of these that I shall now speak of are. there are a few words. Ancient and modern Greek, French, Italian, a mountain patois that serves between French and Italian, Czech, Slovak, Russian, Spanish, German, in an English narrative. So sucks to UKIP. APPLAUSE <laughs> I'd like to know. Then I'm sure it's a fairly easy question. We'll get on to more difficult things in a minute. But you did take yourself off into this so-called exile. Could you just tell us, for a while, for a moment, really, why, in the first place, and what effects you think this had on your writing, which is the bulk of your writing since then, clearly. Well, well,
3: first of all, I mean, of course, it wasn't exile. Let's be quite clear about that. Exile is something imposed. And this was a completely free and privileged choice. So let's eliminate the word exile. It was a choice. And it's difficult to explain, really. its I mean, from the age of about 20, I suppose, um, I I had the, the... the, the notion of going to live elsewhere on the continent rather than to stay here. Hard to explain, really. I mean, it was very strong and persistent. It could be slightly to do with my genetics, if you wish, because my, my f- the father of my father was an emigre uh, from Trieste, and his family came from Trieste and um, uh, uh, Slovakia southern Poland, Jewish family. Um, but but I don't think that weighed a great deal consciously on me. I I, I had the sensation that when I was living here. Um, I would meet people, not 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 close friends, but meet people, and, you know, to talk to them in the street or in a pub or just meeting people. They, ah, I didn't feel at home, and they, I mean, they looked they looked at me as though I was odd. <laughs> so, and I didn't, I wasn't trying to be odd. I wasn't trying to be eccentric or anything. I was just trying to be every day and normal. Um, but my everyday and normal didn't really coincide with theirs. So I thought maybe I should go where there was that coincidence. And then you ask me about the result. Well, now, I mean, when I come back to, to, to London, uh, or Britain, but chiefly London, and this has happened um, more than once. It's happened about three or four times. I go into a pub and I start talking to the next bloke uh, at the counter. And we talk about, I don't know, football match or whatever's happening. And then uh, after about a few minutes, he says to me, where exactly are you from? You speak English very well. (laughs) (laughs) And that didn't happen just once, but, but several times.
0: Thank you. Good. We'll be talking mainly about lyric poetry, and I'll perhaps just remind people that um, John, first of all, with Anna Bostock, translated poems by Brecht, Brecht on theatre. Then the collection already referred to, the poem already referred to, the Cesaire in 1969, again with Anna Bostock. And then in 2008, in fact, the year of his death, a translation of Darwish's uh, mural, that is to say three... <coughs> very great lyric poets have been your concern and you've translated them and I think rather than discuss, as it were, the particularities, the difficulties, the particular difficulties of translation, I'd like to know from you, um, since concentrating on Césaire and, and Darwish as well perhaps, great lyric poets, but lyric poets embedded in very urgent, in fact very destructive political Circumstances, how you think lyric poetry itself, not the epic, not plays, but lyric poetry, what its particular responsibilities are, and how it manages to act and effect things, actually effect good things, in such contexts.
3: Well, maybe I can answer that sort of indirectly, uh, um, come at it obliquely. Because let's think, let's think about translation, but especially the translation of poetry, but not only poetry. Um, translation of, I don't like the word, but literature. <laughs> There's a tendency for people to to, to think that, um, you know, there is a page in the foreign language, and there is a page blank, which is going to be your language, and that you... Read what's here, think about it, and put it here, like that. Um, With, you know, pausing and doubting and changing and correcting, but it's moving from that to that. Now, a a great deal of translation is, of course, that. I mean, most scientific uh, translations, for example, are that. Most technical translations are that. But when it comes to uh, poetry or uh, d- deeply felt stories, I don't think it is like that. Because what you have to do is, here is the, the original, and you have to read that. You have to penetrate it, penetrate that language and go through the page to hear behind it, to that experience, wordless, really, which was waiting to be expressed by that writer, and which he made breakthrough onto the page. (coughs) And you try to get hold of this wordless, but not amorphous, it's very precise, thing, And now it's your language, and it's here. And you try to find words here to bring
0: that onto the page. You see the difference? I I entirely agree. I mean, my own formulation of it over many years, thinking about it, is is that the act of translation is not mimetic, but it's an act of metaphor. That is to say, another metaphor in your own language has to be found for what was done there. Now, if we accept that, that there's something alive in the original... And alive then, in your translation, otherwise it doesn 't work. can we come back to what you think because in the in the small introductory note to your Césaire you distinguish between political thinking and poetic thinking, and you say this is this is a, a poem which has is of thinking it 's made of thinking, and i 'm unsure about that distinction of Cesare was a politician for, for a lot longer than he was an active poet he was he was mayor of of Fort de France in a, in Martinique, he was an active politician. He had very decided views about what should happen to his country, yes. which means to say he had to take decisions in the real world, affecting the lives of lots and lots of people. Now, I'm in no doubt, and know you're in no doubt, about the, the irreplaceable, peculiar value of lyric poetry in a context which is political. And if we could get anywhere near explaining what it is that the lyric does that political <coughs> writing doesn't do and that politics itself can't actually do ever. What is it? I mean, you read, a, you read the sort of celebratory conclusion when he's come through to the point where he's prepared to say of his country that there is actually something to reach forward towards. But the whole thing is lyrical <laughs> from the very word go, isn't it? This extraordinary thing. I mean, l- listen to aloud. It's, it's a visceral sort of experience. Now, what has visceral writing to do with political at all? Anything? Yeah, well, okay, visceral
3: writing, as you say. It seems to me that if you um, translate like that, even forget translation for the moment, just writing at that degree of intensity, Mm -hmm. one goes into your mother tongue and it seems to me that that word that expression mother tongue is incredibly important um, because in some way you, you enter a body I mean in a kind of way you enter the uterus of that tongue which is yours and words and phrases, speech, is completely different there. It has nothing to do with the acronyms, uh, the ab- constant abbreviations with which we live in the media today and uh, and uh, with information, which are completely empty of the visceral, which are abstract
0: mm.
3: and, and very, very often political. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, read most political commentaries and you will come across acronym after acronym today. Whereas in that mother tongue and her uterus all the words of that language are in a way present, like cells. They are there, even the ones you don't know. And the relation between those potential words are there as a kind of energy which you listen to and hope will enter you and so then, then you begin to have a language which is deeply visco in contrast to the abstractions of so much language that is used around us Uh, by the media and and journals. And I'm coming to reply to the question because because this is already a a great, great deal, this physicality. May I just read you a page of, of Dylan Thomas? It's called Before I Knocked. Before I knocked and let flesh enter with liquid hands tapped on the womb. I, who was as shapeless as the water that shaped the Jordan near my home, was brother to Mnetha's daughter and sister to the fathering worm. I, who was deaf to spring and summer, who knew not sun nor moon by name, felt thud beneath my flesh's armour, as yet was in a molten form, the leaden stars, the rainy hammer swung by my father from his dome. I knew the message of the winter, the darted hail, the childish snow, and the wind was my sister-suitor. Wind in me leaped, the hell-born dew. My veins flowed with the eastern weather. Ungotten, I knew night and day. As yet ungotten, I did suffer. The rack of dreams, my lily bones, did twist into a living cipher. And flesh was snipped to cross the lines of gallow crosses on the liver and brambles in the ringing brains. I mean, there there you have a demonstration, very, very graphic, of the connection between lyric poetry and the body.
0: (laughs) Yes, I I take that point entirely, and there's an awful lot of Thomas that one might read, like (coughs) Fernhill... I suppose what what struck me reading your version here and reading the French next to it and it actually shocked me I have to say is that that kind of lyrical and kind of of its very nature celebratory drive is there in the Césaire for the bulk of the poem in which he is not celebrating his country he is actually saying just what a shit awful place it is and that's the same lyric drive is saying how vile it is here, how vile the people have been made, how without hope they've been, as it were, impaired, (coughs) physically impaired over centuries of slavery into a condition which is actually abject. And he says that, and that is the long premise of this celebratory, this hopeful bit towards the end. And it's said in a language which I think very few people would dare to use about their own... Nation about their own country, about their own race. I mean, I, the page after page after page says just how bad it is, how bad they have been made to be, to become, in this colossal, centuries-old vilification of them and the, the effects which have been known, known since Homer. Homer says the same. An enslaved man is not a whole being. And after centuries of slavery, for somebody of that colossal lyric drive, now when you actually listen, the rhythms of it, they're the same bodily rhythms, it's the same mother tongue, it's a made up mother tongue in lots of ways, it's a fashioned one out of, out of Martinique and metropolitan France, it's an extraordinary language. But there's something going on which in its rhythms is celebratory, is not saying no at all, and yet the topic of it, if you like the political substratum of it, is abject awfulness. I don't know another poem that works quite like that.
3: But maybe, maybe we need to clarify a bit this idea of celebratory. I mean, something that is yeah. celebrating. And maybe one has to th- ask what is the function of hope? Hope has nothing to do with optimism.
0: True, absolutely.
3: Yeah. Nothing. And in an abject situation, which is be- exactly because it's abject, is undefined, is nameless, uh, is mute. In an abject situation, the very naming of it mm. is a, an act of courage. Yes, I think. And that. in that courage... An example, and because it gives that example, it offers—offers offers is already too strong a word—but it demonstrates, like a flickering candle flame, hope.
0: I think that's true. And you, you, some years back now, you gave us an essay for modern poetry in translation, which was about the condition of despair, effectively, of Palestinian despair. In in that. That it has to be said, and I suppose it struck me reading Césaire, is that if you didn't know what these words meant, you know, if you if you didn't understand French and you had it read at you in French, you would feel this thing to be a thing of colossal energy. If you then told that the words lexically actually mean how bad it is, nevertheless you would have felt, in your sense of this kind of visceral feeling, you would have felt this is energy, an energy is a Blakeian positive. It's something out of which something might, might come. And it struck me this time that perhaps the whole premise of, of even reaching the point that you're calling hope, without optimism in a way, is first of all truth. And actually telling the truth with that kind of energy is in fact beautiful. In, in, if you don't mind this, bring, and I don't mind this, bringing together a categorism of, of truth and beauty, it seems to me that the truth when told is actually beautiful in a very particular Way and his telling it in language which he 's you know which is mother tongue, but he 's making it up is actually beautiful there 's no gain saying it. It's an old dilemma, beautiful war poetry, beautiful poetry about slavery, beautiful poetry about the camps. Is there such a... I mean, Ceylan couldn't do it. Ceylan said, I can't do it, I'm not going to do it. But Césaire is actually doing something which is, which is not a camp, but it is actually centuries <laughs> of being enslaved, not just his decades. Now, is, does, that sound, does that sound completely phony? Does that sound like a wrong kind of redress to be asking for, that the lyric itself, its rhythms and its energy, is a force for, you know, the stage before Hope, even. Because if he doesn't say it, and it's not been said as badly as that, I mean, how bad it is, then, in a sense, there's no... He has no justification in reaching the point that you read from it's the same in Darwish. I was reading the two together. It was profoundly moving to see great lyric poets treating these subjects of, of, of colossal national, racial importance. You, that's like coming back to my point about what is political thinking and what is poetic thinking. I mean, the poetic thinking is effectively, is it not what you're, you're calling the mother tongue? It's there, and in, the truth of it is in, in itself in some hard to define fashion.
3: I mean, I want to talk about facing up
0: to reality. Yes, when we start.
3: Okay, this changes from um, historical period to historical period. At the moment, in the last decade or so, I mean, we, we live in a period where most public discourse does not face up to reality. Like I've already said, it uses acronyms... It's evasive, promises mean nothing, although endlessly repeated. And so we are surrounded in a kind of way um, by a political gibberish. And in that situation, to face up to reality is a... okay, we we say it's a lyric task. I'm not sure, because lyric... So literary term, and this seems to me to be something much, much more visceral. And also much, much more to do with communication and the solidarity which is behind communication. I mean, for example, it's nothing to do with poetry, but you talked about Palestine. Just to say one thing, I was there quite often, and a rather surprising fact emerged, because not all the time, But mostly, in Israel, the atmosphere between people was nervous. And when you came to the West Bank, to the Palestinians, who lived in incredible insecurity, uh, enormous practical difficulties, oddly enough, their relation to each other, by contrast, was almost jovial. The principle behind that is something like this, okay, you know, maybe this is, I exaggerate here, but it doesn't matter, maybe this is our last afternoon, so let's make the most of it. And in that facing of fact, and in the sharing of that, there is an energy which generates a kind of Mm. hope. And, I, and there when I talk about that maybe I should just underline that because the hope is not, okay, this may be our last afternoon, so the hope is not really about tomorrow afternoon, the hope is some, about something being shared now just between us now
0: In a sense, in a real sense I think there is only one tense in poetry and it is the present tense even if it looks forward, even if it looks back, it's happening now. Right. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why it is actually. It's a present feeling, because as as the reader reads or as the reader listens, she he is experiencing it now, and it's rather what you're saying in that way. So it's a matter of facing up, and it's a matter of present, of present living rather than... And that's a great gift in a way. Yes. Yes. I, I mentioned to you before this... When war broke out in 1939, Caesar came back home and he had a very sardonic message for those on the mainland of civilised Christian Europe. He more or less said, well, perhaps now you'll know what it's like. Now that you've actually there in your civilised Christian camp begun to see what the politics of a master race might look like in practice... That matters, I think, because what he could point to, even longer than the Palestinians, was a history, a long history, of civilised, Christian, sanctioned enslavement of an entire people, a black people, just that, sanctioned and justified, so that when similar, manifestly stupid racial theories were being touted around by Nazi ideologues, he said, well, you have your ideology, you have your justification. It is now happening there at home, and you expect us to sympathise? I mean, I suppose what's happening in a poem like this, as with Darwish as well, is that there are kind of eons of bitterness. And yet this man towards the the end of it saying, j'accept, 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 I accept, I accept, and then actually praying, let me not hate. I find that wasn't one of the most moving bits in the whole poem. Having given ample reason for a, a racial, national loathing of everything to do with the civilised West, he says, "Let me not hate." And I suppose, perhaps again, it comes from the saying. You know, if you've actually said it in the way that you say, it, and it's a present saying, and it's got this the energy of being said, which can't be a bad thing. No one can feel it to be a bad thing listening or reading this it feels like an energy an energy feels like a good we'll have questions and then we'll finish the question when we've had questions enough um, John will finish with, uh, with another reading of another poet
1: it's a sort of comment or I hope uh, I was very strongly moved by what both of you said but it made me think very much of two poets. One says of Alejo who dealt with pain and the pain of a suppression of a culture in very similar ways to which both of you were speaking, particularly David in a way. And also Abdelatif Labi, who in the late 50s, early 60s wrote a book of very similar length to Return to My Native Land from the civil war in North Africa. And he wrote a text of intense lyric energy and it seems to me that it's that lyric energy in Césaire that sort of punches with empathy right through that political gibberish that John was talking about. Forgive me it's not a question but just a comment that maybe might... No, it's it's worth having
0: as much corroboration as we can I think from as many (laughs) lyric poets in urgent circumstances and Stephen there gave us two further instances of that kind of Energy, which is in itself intrinsically hopeful. Thank you.
1: Hello. um, I might be shooting my mouth off here. Um, I heard a quotation, and I think it was Darwish. And I may have got it a little bit wrong, but as I remember it, it said, this poem has many authors. And I think uh, that's also as it were, a corroboration of the kind of thing that you were saying you know, talking about generations behind you and so forth Um, I don't know whether anybody else has come across that quotation but I was very struck by it Mm. Um, I was very interested what you said about mother tongue, and I wonder if you could reflect a bit more on that um, the the use of um, um, the language of the colonized by colonized peoples, and the debates about that, and the languages behind the, the language in which something ends up being written in.:
3: When, when you, you're trying to write something, you're faced, um, of course, with the choice of words. Uh, and you can look those words up in a dictionary to have their meaning but you can also find those words in what I call the mother tongue and there there's not a definition but there is the almost infinite number of relationships between that word and other words. Not other synonyms, but other words. Adjectives, verbs, prepositions. Uh, And if you enter that mother tongue, your choice of the next word or the next words for that sentence uh, is changed. Um, um, And with a bit of luck, a lot of luck, uh, what you write will have a kind of authenticity which actually comes from the language, which comes from what it has taken as coherence from that mother tongue, which contains all words. I would add to that as a kind of little PS, is that, you know, I mean, I think that is true of all mother tongues, (laughs) obviously, Uh, I mean, which one, it doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, and in that sense, I mean, they they are, um,
4: they are identical in their functioning. It, it's well known because Césaire says it himself; he, he owns he owns it himself. That uh, two of the big influences on his craft as a poet were the two of the great French, not classical nineteenth-century poets, Lotrion being one, and Malamé being the other. And it's particularly important because a lot of younger Martinican writers and Antillean writers, critics of Césaire, have always said how is it that the great poet of Negritude, the greatest poet of Negritude, should be so influenced by these classical 19th century French white poets. Mm-hmm. And my question t- to you, uh, Mr. Berger, is um, as someone who loves the notebook of Return to My Native Land, which you must do, what is for you the relationship between the kind of poetry that Lautreamont and Malamé are famous for and Césaire's great work? What distinguishes
3: Césaire from those European Influences and masters is the character of his rage. And my guess is that the particular character of his rage is connected with the duration of the suffering and humiliation that he is talking about a duration of centuries European poets uh, especially and especially the surrealists who also influenced him I mean they have a kind of rage but it's a, it's a, it's a very recent and local rage it's more like a peak <laughs> in French <laughs> um, it it doesn't come from the bowels and his does.
0: The sense of
4: the word hope um, and your um, discussion on hope um, is really fundamental for um, humanity.
0: Thank you. Uh, can I just read, again, that was very important. Um, it's really the principle of of hope that, as the gentleman there says, is actually universal and poetry is a great way of reaching that universal and without that universality the feeling that it is embedded in, in poetry of whatever language, as you say since we since we began, is a good image to th- finish with from the question. They are forms that travel and that's there's lyric poetry wherever there has been speech
3: strange, because um, I planned now to to read a poem which um, is almost like a reply to what has just been said uh, here, but unforeseen. Um, and and it's, a, it's a poem also by a um, West Indian poet, um, but who lived in London. He's called Peter Blackman, published uh, by Smokestack Books, this very, very good editor of poetry in Britain, a little similar to the marvellous archipelago uh, publisher of poetry uh, in the United States. These poems were published uh, after his death. I I won't talk about him, I just want to read this poem. And it's called um, Stalingrad. And I want to read it because history changes history is contradictory um, because it is living. It's contradictory also in a visceral kind of way and uh, very, very often the ideologues forget this even the political historians quite often. So this is a poem um, about Stalingrad and one of the reasons why I want to read it is that I was 12, 13 years old when the Battle of Stalingrad took place. And I remember so intensely hearing and waiting for the news of what was happening there. Okay, immediately one says uh, Stalingrad, which is no longer called Stalingrad, the only place which is called Stalingrad now is a metro station in Paris. And then, of course, you know, uh, the Gulag. Oh, you're forgetting the Gulag. Uh, um, 25 years ago, Nella Bielski and I wrote a play about the Zek political prisoners of the Gulag. They're not forgotten. But this is this poem. Hushed with the world And, oh, dark agony, that suspense shook upon us while hate came flooding over your wide savannas, plunging pestilence against you all that stood to say that where men meet, there meets one human race. Therefore did men from Moscow to the Arctic, rounding Vladivostok, south where Kazbek lifts its peak, still work and working, waited news of Stalingrad. And from Cape to wide Sahara, men asked news of Stalingrad. Town and village waited. What had come? What had come of Stalingrad? The tom-tom beat across thick forest, while every evening at palaver, old men told of Stalingrad. The gauchos caught the pampas whisper. Wind swept hope of Stalingrad, and in the far Canadian north, trappers left their baiting for the latest out of Stalingrad in the factories and coal fields each shift waited what last had come from Stalingrad while statesmen searched the dispatch boxes what they brought of Stalingrad and women stopped at housework held their children close to hear what was afoot at Stalingrad for well man knew that there a thousand years was thrown the fate of the peoples. Stalingrad, O star of glory, star of hope, O star of flame, a Soviet soldier and his nine companions who full seven weeks sleepless by night and day fought nor gave ground. They knew that with them lay that Where men meet should meet one human race. Carpenters who had built houses wanted only to build more. Painters who still painted pictures wanted only to paint more. Men who sang life strong in laughter wanted only to sing more. Men who planted wheat and cotton wanted only to plant more. Men who set the years in freedom, sure they would be slaves no more. They spoke peace to their neighbours at Tilling, for in peace they would eat their bread. Uzbeks, Tartars, Letts, Ukrainians, Russians, Muscovites, Armenians, who ringed forests so wide around the Arctic, brought sands to blossom Tardars dressed for spring. We may not weep for those who silent now rest here. Garland these graves. These lives have garlanded all our remaining days with hope. Stalingrad, O oh star of glory, star of hope, here spread your flame. And now when news broke that Stalingrad still lived upon the banks of Volga, That Stalingrad was still a Soviet town. Then the Turner flung his lathe light as a bird. And the Gaucho spread his riot in the Pampas. For this news of Stalingrad, the Tom Tom beat wild madness when the elders brought Palava, these tidings, out of Stalingrad the English housewife stopped her housework, held her child close and cried aloud, Now all men will be free. And from good hope black miners answered, This will help us to be free. In the prison camps of Belsen, sick men routed from their guards. Now life was certain soon, all men would be free. New light broke upon Africa, new strength for her peoples. New strength poured upon Asia, new hope for her peoples. America dreamed new dreams from the strength of her peoples. New men arose in Europe, new force for her peoples. Once more they stand, these men at lathe and spindle, to recreate their hours and each new day. Men ring forests wide around the Arctic, move rivers into deserts, and with high courage breed new generations, for still the land is theirs. Uzbeks, Tartars, Letts, Armenians, Caucasians, Muscovites, Crimeans. Still they speak peace to their neighbors at Tilling, to all the wide world. And men come near to listen, find by that day of Stalingrad, this voice is theirs. Then Red Star, Spread your flame upon me. For in your flame is earnest of my freedom. Now may I rendezvous with the world. Now may I joy in man's (coughs) wide-flung diversity. For Stalingrad is still a Soviet town. Thank you, John. Thank you for joining
1: us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop
3: on iTunes.